Hey, I'm Robert Pearson, and this is Follow the Leader. We're doing a Just My Two Cents today. And uh, the question came up recently, and I felt like this is a good time to answer it. Why I read the Bible at face value. So, how I read the Bible is because I believe life is simple and life is logical. Everything kind of makes sense after that. So, the, the, the two things that I look at as I read the Bible, when I'm looking at a passage, is I'm expecting it to be simple and logically consistent. So as I read the Bible, my guiding stars are, I read it at face value, the words as understood at being read. I read the words at face value. That should be a good enough reading to understand what's going on. And then if there's a moral application or a spiritual truth, or the story serves as an allegory for our experience as believers in the first century, awesome. Those are other things that are within the text because God's word is so rich and does not return void. But it also needs to be true and logically consistent at face value. And I believe that the Bible is properly understood in the historically grammatical, the whole historical grammatical method. Know the history, know the language, read the book at face value. The reason that I do that is because the... There's a lot of reasons. The main undergirding reason is Jesus. Are you a Christian? Okay, what makes you a Christian? I'm going to assume you said something that sounded like a sentence that had the word Jesus in it somewhere, right? Because you believe in Jesus or something, or he forgave your sins, or so I want to follow Christ, something like that. There should be some reference to Jesus in whatever sentence you said. Um, even because I was born again, you know, why, how are you born again, what does that do? Being a Christian means that your sins are forgiven before God, and you are now saved from death, from real physical death, and will be resurrected one day. That's, that's what being a Christian means. And how do you get those things? Oh, well, Jesus died for your sins, and in believing in him, you can live. Okay, how do you know that? Oh, well, the, the Bible said that a man lived, said some things, did some things, and then was brutally murdered, and then he stopped being dead and said, yo, guys, you can do the same thing I just did, uh, but you got to listen to the stuff I said while I was here. Okay? Cool. Figure that out. I'll be back later. And then he split. That's what I'm with you always, even under the NDH. I know, but it's not as punchy of an ending. So, uh, yes, Matthew thought it was a punchy ending for his gospel. I'm aware of that. 
that's the whole thing. None of that happens unless you read the Gospels using the historical grammatical method and take them at face value. When you do that, when you look at the Gospels as nothing more than any other historical document, and we hold them up to the same scrutiny we hold any other historical document, and we cross-reference it with all of the other historical references there are to the life and work of Jesus Christ, you run into the fact that Jesus' resurrection, his actual death and his actual resurrection, are a more certain historical fact than the existence of Caesar or Alexander the Great. No, I say Caesar, I mean the first Caesar. We got less than a paragraph of information and maybe five copies of of some of the documents that refer to these guys or re- report about their lives. We, you got two biographers writing 200 years after the guy was alive, 300 years after, and those are the best represented ones. And we'll have five copies of it. You know, maybe 20 if we're lucky, like Homer's The Odyssey. Well represented, there are 18 or 20 copies in, in different languages and stuff. Thousands of Greek New Testament New Testament manuscripts. Thousands. They number in the thousands. And they all agree with each other outside of minor grammatical errors here and there. Um, you know, spelling variations or a, a subtle word choice where it's, it's a synonym. It changes nothing of the at-face-value big-picture meaning. Um, You know, there might be some theological nuance people could argue over from a verb tense or something, which is valid, but that's that's the available depth. And the text is still true at face value, the big picture of everything, right? Jesus Christ came and died for your sins and then was resurrected, and you can do the same for only one easy payment of your entire life. So, they're your heart and mind, I guess. With two easy payments of your heart and then your mind. I don't know, this is probably a snappier way to have put that. Anyway, that's why I read the Bible in a historical view and in a uh, yeah, at face value. Because otherwise... I've got no footing to say that Jesus rose from the dead. At which point, I've got no point in being a Christian or saying I'm a Christian. Jesus is little more than just another Gandhi or a Buddha or something. He's just a good storyteller. So why not stand at the pulpit and recite Winnie the Pooh at somebody's funeral? There are churches that do that. Why not? Well, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, born of a virgin, come to the earth in the flesh, Son of God, 100% man, and uh, then was was murdered and rose from the dead, and you have freedom from sin, okay. The stuff he did and said while he was alive become very important because he's the only human in history that's ever risen from the dead. Well, if I read the New Testament Gospels in a historical grammatical method, taking them at face value, then why wouldn't I do that with the rest of the scriptures? The people that learned from Jesus went out and they're writing books, their followers are writing histories. 
They're trying to tell everybody they can because that was the job they were given. Well, one of the things all of these guys do is compulsively refer to the Old Testament. Jesus himself compulsively referred to the Old Testament. His, uh, his The entirety of the beginning of Matthew is setting up Jesus. Uh, he's, he's undoing all of the weird Talmudic pharisaical laws that were supposedly based on Moses' law. And so he undercuts the authority of one religious text. And then at the same time, all throughout the book, uh, the author is saying, uh, Matthew is saying, this is so that this prophecy in Isaiah would be fulfilled, right? This is so that this prophecy would be fulfilled. Oh, well, we know Isaiah was to be taken at face value, that a guy would show up and actually set captives free, actually make, you know, lame men walk and blind men see. That was a thing actually going to happen. Do you know what captives are set free? Peter and Paul in the book of Acts, Silas, Barnabas. They're imprisoned repeatedly for the gospel. They just keep strolling out like they, they have keys to the place. Another thing Jesus does is he refers to the book of Genesis as though the historical narrative is taken at face value. He refers to Moses as having authored portions of it. First Abraham as though he's an actual historical figure. So the only guy who ever came back from the dead after calling it, it's one thing to happen on accident because, you know, you fell in a lake or something. Having called it beforehand, they're going to kill me. Chill out. I'll be back. I'll be back. Brief side note, the greatest action story ever told. It's an old Mad TV bit. It is the funniest piece of comedy I have ever seen that's based on the scripture and it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. There's nothing blasphemous about it at all. It's fantastic. It assumes Jesus's divinity for the joke to work. It's magic. Anyway, greatest action story ever told. It's fantastic. So the Bible, I firmly believe the Bible has to be read in a historical context, reading it in its historical context and taking it at face value and understand the languages involved, right? That's, that's what you do with any book. You read your newspaper differently from you read your, nobody reads newspapers anymore. You read your Twitter feed differently than you read a love letter your wife wrote you, then you read a Tom Clancy novel then you read uh, a billboard as you're driving to work. Or some esoteric alchemical text written by uh, Falconelli or something. You're not, you're going to read all of those very different ways. You're still going to use your eyes. You're going to strive to understand the historical context where it took place. His, history is a big word that gets used to confuse the fact that you're talking about humans doing stuff. We live in time. Andrew Clavin's a very smart man. We live in time. 
And in time, you have to understand, that's what the historical context is. Where were these people in time, in location, in their relationship to the other humans around them, right? Um, when you're reading the book of Esther, you can read the book of Esther, take it at face value, and go, okay, that's a cool book about a lady who became queen and saved the Israelites from being just horribly murdered in uh, Babylon. All right, good deal. Might have been Assyria. I forget exactly. I think it was Babylon. I think it was during the Babylonian captivity. Um, or no, there was Assyrian captivity because Xerxes is the king of Persia. It's I'm all getting there. It took me the took me a second. So you can read it and go, all right, that's a cool story. You can do a little historical digging and realize that it's very likely that. The movie 300, The Battle of Thermopylae, Persia's attempted invasion of Greece that just failed. He got licked by 300 Spartans oh, and oh, 1,600, you know, 1,600 other Greeks that we just forget about conveniently, right? And still, you've got an army numbered in millions being held off by a couple thousand people. That's preposterous. It's the power of a bottleneck, tactically. It's amazing. Uh, so they force the enemy to engage on their circumstances, and they they trounce. They are dead to the last man, but they give way better than they got. And the entire gigantic army is demoralized, and they just stroll away home. Uh, they, there's more to it than that. There was the exact same tactical engagement that happened at sea with the uh, an Athenian general who basically lied to everybody to get a bunch of boats built in time because he knew Assyria was going to be a problem. Excuse me. And... Uh, there's a whole ocean battle where the guy does the same thing that the uh, that the cool cats, the Spartans, and all their their buddies are doing on land, where he found a bottleneck. The Assyrian ships had to come through, and he had a a little tight unit, and they just kept nailing them anytime they came through the bottleneck. So they, he gets whipped. He loses a ton of boats. He loses a ton of soldiers and a ton of morale. And so Xerxes goes home, throws a party that his wife refuses to show up to. And he gets upset. He exiles his wife. And he's like, I'm going to get a new wife. And this little girl named Esther winds up, luck of the draw, becoming the next queen. That's right. That creepy dude from 300 is also the charming king from One Night with the King. Oh, yeah. Feel bad. Feel bad for Esther. She's a trooper. And it adds a, a degree of depth to the book of the Bible. But... You still read it at face value, and you just have a little extra background knowledge as you're reading through. It creates a great allegory for, as Christians in the world, we are to speak truth and do what God wants us, regardless of the consequences, even though we might be scared, you know, to move prayerfully, uh, that it's not wrong to be strategic or planning, because, oh, I just... As soon as I got to that part of the sentence, my brain decided to forget her uncle's name. Haman's the bad guy. Melazabro something. It's been a day. It's been a day. Anyway, so like her uncle is really crafty, sets things up, takes care of her. It's okay to be shrewd. Jesus tells us to be shrewd, right? So you learn stuff from the allegory of it, but it's because you read it at face value that's where you start.
And uh, that's the reason I use those, and I use them for every book of the Bible. Oh, but what about visions and revelation? They tell you they're having a vision. Although, I am a proponent of a strictly literal interpretation of revelations. Because I, I was upset when I found out that talking about, oh, Apache helicopters are what the locusts of Revelation are going to be, or genetic hybrids, and that's a literal interpretation. No! I want giant locusts with human faces and scorpion tails. That's that's the literal translation. The literal interpretation of Revelation should be a giant 50-story Godzilla monster coming up out of the ocean with 75 horns that everybody starts worshipping. If you're going to say it's the literal interpretation, you need to stick with it, bud. And I just think it would be it would be enjoyable. It'd be a lot more enjoyable to live through the end times if we're getting giant monsters having Godzilla battles over the oceans and there's clearly like one horn dragging his head around and he's like fighting the other monsters and then one monster shows up and they all worship it. It'd be a gas. I mean, we're all going to die anyway. Why not? Why not have a good good dinner show right beforehand? So, but they tell you they're having visions. When you read the Bible, oh, and I had a vision, or I was in a trance on the Lord's Day, and I saw... It tells you it's in a vision. There are obvious context clues to know that an actual giant statue didn't descend from the sky and stack up in multiple layers of uh, was it iron, iron bronze and clay mixed with iron and get smashed by a mountain. He, he sets it up. I had a vision. I saw these things. It's, it's obvious as you just simply read it. That's why you should read the entirety of the book you're in, at least. You don't have to read the whole Bible cover to cover. It would be good. Yeah, I, I'm firmly convinced you receive a blessing from it. I personally haven't. My wife is working her way through it, and that's awesome. Go her. And yes, I would be better for having the discipline to achieve that. But it's not necessary. But when you're reading a book, reading a verse, read the chapter that it's in. Read the book that the chapter is in. That's all a context for it. And so it's important to understand how all these things come together. And it just read it in the plain language. Now, there's a couple of things. There's a... There's the, the other ancillary reasons I do this, that means extra and slightly less important reasons, that I do this, are it clears up a lot of things that people say are problems. Because they don't become problems in the first place. I'm, I'm waiting for a red light. I have to be really attentive right now because this is a weird intersection. Uh, it, it clears up a lot of other nuanced problems by having them not be problems for me and I can just chuckle about other people arguing over them. Uh, one of those issues is the culturally relevant train. I forget if I talked about this in Leviticus or Numbers. I'm going to bring it up again. Uh, the culturally relevant train has no stops. Once you get on, once you buy a ticket and you take a seat, you're on it. And you may think your stop is just up ahead or, oh, I'll only ride it for a minute. You're wrong. You're stuck on it now. 
So you can either jump from the train entirely, or just ride it, ride it forever, ride it where it goes. Once you take a Bible verse and say, oh, this doesn't matter to me because I disagree with it, and so I will recontextualize that it's culturally relevant. There's no end to that logic. There's no single place in the Bible that you stop at. What if you're in a culture where it's completely okay to murder, say, babies? And it's fine to murder babies. Oh, but all these verses that tell us humans are, are carefully crafted in the womb, they were talking to a different context. They didn't have access to our... It was a different, it was a different culture then. Uh, murdering full-grown adult humans, right? Well, well, it was a different culture back then. Murder wasn't acceptable, so God said murder's not acceptable. But now, murder is completely acceptable culturally, so those verses don't apply to us. That's, that's, the, end, that's the end of the line for the, uh, the culturally relevant train, is a cliff. A cliff of nothing matters anymore. A cliff of nihilism. A cliff of the culture becomes your God. The culture is your authority, and you change the Bible to match the culture. If the Bible is your authority, if God is your authority then your understanding of culture needs to be filtered through the Bible. So it doesn't matter what culture says is acceptable. The Bible says homosexuality is wrong. And if you say those verses only say that because it's culturally relevant, then eventually you're going to be talking about how murder is okay. Even the murder of children. The culturally relevant train has no stops. There's nowhere to get off. You'll stay on it until you come to the terrible, gruesome end of the line. Or, you got to jump from the train. It's not a good answer for any of it. At all. There's, there are other answers for things. The, the other thing that becomes an issue is whenever you read something in the Bible that talks about a miracle, or would requ- require a defying of the laws of physics, I don't, I don't agree with the word law. Well, I do, but not when they use it. The laws of physics requiring them to be bent or broken for things to occur. The sun stopping for, uh, for Joshua. Oh, do you know what would happen if you stopped the sun in the sky? That means the earth quits spinning, so everybody flies into space. If the sun, which is actually orbiting, spinning itself, stopped moving through space, earth would be thrown off into the abyss, or everyone would die, or... The nuclear fusion that allows it to burn would cease, and it's God, okay? If you live in a world that says materialism is the only answer to any problem, you become a godless atheist. If you have a problem with a biblical text where it said God parted the waters, well, how did he part? It doesn't matter. He parted them. They split. I don't need a materialist answer for some sea of reeds garbage that's not even geographically accurate to where they would have crossed the Red Sea. So I gotta make a bunch of nonsense fit. No. It's not a problem because I read it at face value. I understand that God is all-powerful. I don't need a materialist answer for it. I'm not a godless heathen. I believe in the one true God who can do whatever he wants. It's his universe. He also said, 
neither uh, rain nor sun nor uh, winter or harvest will cease when he's given Noah a promise. He's like, look, I'm not going to do this again. Everything's going to continue as it is. So I can rely on the world to not break dramatically, no matter how powerful we think we are. And, you know, if things do defy that order, it's because God allowed it to happen. It's still not a problem for me, right? I'm on the winning team. So there are some hard questions, um, but only because of our current context, it, it makes the questions hard. And there is there's one hard question that is difficult to resolve, and uh, you almost just have to throw your hands up and go, ah, ah, yep, about. So I'm, I'm going to say that one for last. All right, first one. Where does Cain get his wife from? This one got brought up recently in a live stream I was in, and uh, it's a decent question. So you'll notice as you're reading Genesis, it never tells you Adam poops. It never tells you that they woke up and ate breakfast. It never tells you that they had to learn how to hunt, how to grow food, how to skin animals, how to make tools, how to build houses, how to parent, how to weave had a braid rope. It never tells you those things, but we know those things happened because that's how primitive people live. If you get thrown out on your duff with nothing but some uh, skins to cover you, you have to do all those things. You start with sticks and banging rocks together, and eventually you're going to be like, there's got to be a better way to do this. Adam lived for like 500 years. See, that's not a problem for me. Because I read it at face value. God can do whatever he wants. Uh, I do hold to canopy theory, but only because that description of the world pre-flood makes the most sense for how you would divide waters from waters. Uh, this is something else that came up recently. Um, let, me, let me finish with Cain's wife, and then I'll, I'll touch on that for a second. Cain, the only other people on the planet are also going to be children of Adam and Eve. Apparently, the other children aren't important because they're not written down. It's the way life is. Uh, so they have other kids. They have Cain, and they have Abel. Cain kills Abel. And then they have uh, Seth as their third child. And Seth gets a wife. Cain goes out and finds a wife. Seth finds a wife. Where are all these people coming from? There were only two people to start with, guys. Then there were three people. Then there were four people. Then there were three people again. Then there were four people. And there's not a timeline given for when these events happen or occur. We're told later Adam lives for like eight or nine hundred years. Okay, so let's assume from the age of 20, you're able to have one child a year. Because that's about average for people to have about one child a year. Well, you live to 800 years old. Let's say 820, from age 20 to age 800, you have 800 children running around in the world. Some of those kids are 799 years old. That's a lot of people. 
Now, assuming every one of those people started having kids at 20, for easy math, you've got 800 kids that all start having their own kids. So that one first kid of yours, that's 799 right now, 799 minus 20 is 779. There we go. Took me a second. 779 children from your firstborn. Your secondborn, 778 children. Your thirdborn, 777 children. <coughs> you get the picture yet? You've had three kids, and then you just had your own kids, and only your first three kids start having their kids, up to your 800 years old. You got like a couple thousand people. That that happens really quickly. God said be fruitful and multiply, bud. So you got three important ones. Number one. Number one killed number two. So number two is very important. And then number three, because he's the next guy. Why is number three important if he had that many extra kids? Because number three is the only one whose line gets carried on to us. Everybody else dies. All of them. That's the flood. They all die. Noah's the only one who makes it on this side of the flood. Later we have the sons of Anak somehow shrug. I don't know and neither does anybody else. Any guess is valid uh, unless it's based on crazy Gnostic heresies. Then it's wrong. So everybody dies. Noah comes from the line of Seth. So that's why we care about Seth. Everybody else, it's a crapshoot. I don't know. They all die. It doesn't matter doesn't matter because they're all dead. We follow Cain because he's the first murderer and he makes some cities and he sets a bad precedent for how people should behave. By the way, he lives just several hundred years having several thousand children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. get a lot of people really fast, guys. We don't know. uh, Well, I I argue that we do know. Um, From... uh, from Adam to Noah is, uh, what was it, 404 B.C. to, to Abraham. It's 2,000. It was like 1,000 years or something. I haven't, I haven't looked at the math in a while. 404 B.C. for young earth creationists. Uh, I, I take the gene- genealogy at face value. Straight numbers all the way back. Well, I disagree with science. That's okay. Science is wrong. Science isn't going to get me to heaven after I die. It has no promise of an afterlife. Uh, They like to think they do, but they don't. So, it's irrelevant. By the way, what I believe about evolution doesn't change the fact that I'm an electrician, and electricity works. That's science. I manipulate the forces of lightning every day with my own hands and a screwdriver. That science I know works. I've uh, run crossways of it a couple times. It's not fun. So, Cain's wife, of logical necessity, would have been his sister. But that's wrong. Who determines what's wrong? Well, God does. Okay. When does God say it's wrong? After the Exodus. That's 400 years after Abraham. Which was, you know, a thousand and change, two thousand years after Adam gets kicked out of the garden. That's a long time. Abraham married his half-sister. 
Isaac married his first cousin. Jacob married two of his first cousins. Isaac marries Laban's sister. Where does Jacob go to get his wives? Laban's house. Incest was apparently okay because these are the people God chose and blessed. And he told them straight up, you know, what to do, what not to do. You know, he's like, hey, circumcise your kids. Adhere to this law. Abraham, you you really shouldn't have lied to those guys. It, It turns out bad for you. So, he was accounted righteous before the Lord. Apparently, incest isn't a big deal until it becomes a big deal in Leviticus. God makes everything perfect. He looks at it and says it's good. And genes decay over time. Not in, I, don't, I don't know a lot. I know incest is bad now because it makes deaf-blind people. If you look at uh, rates for people that are deaf and blind, deaf-blind... They're really high in Arkansas for some reason. There is a genetic, an obvious genetic consequence for inbreeding right now. Incest. You can see it. You can see noble fear in air quotes, right? They are, over time, if you look at family portraits over time of of nobility, I forget one of the houses, one of them gets a giant nose in about four or five generations. Even the women look like the men. And uh, you look at the history of that family, and it was just nothing but health problems. There's an obvious toll. All of God's laws in Leviticus, he tells them, are so you will live long in the land. They were not to marry their sisters, or their mothers, their father's wives, none of it. They were... Also, not to marry other nations. So they were supposed to keep within Israel, but also outside of their own family. So there's some kind of genetic toll over time. All things decay. It's called entropy. So God makes humans perfect, and that perfect gene pool uh, doesn't really matter then. They're whatever decay is happening apparently isn't enough to affect people that badly. Until, I guess, a couple thousand years in, Mount Sinai, God says, alright guys, it's time to stop. Okay. Cain's wife. Now, that answer might not be good enough for you, but it's good enough for me. I read my Bible at face value because Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And He wouldn't be if I didn't. Other hard questions. Genesis 6, chapter 1. Uh, chapter 6, sorry. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1-ish and on down. Uh, you've got sons of God marrying the daughters of men. Having children, which were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. The righteous line of Seth explanation is nonsense. It doesn't fit. It's a big deal when Jesus calls himself the Son of God because he was clearly claiming divinity. And they attempt to stone him for it. So apparently, first century Jews who grew up speaking Hebrew did not read that sentence to mean, probably, that they were uh, normal men who were just extra righteous, you know. So when it says, you know, oh, the day came for the sons of God to come before the Lord and Satan came among them in Job. Well, it was, you know, those were just all the really righteous people. 
No. Nine times out of ten, almost ten times out of ten, sons of God refers to some divine or angelic being beyond our immediate understanding. It could be a really big guy with wings. It could be some crazy dude with like four faces and six wings. And he's like covering his his head and his feet with four of the wings and flying with the other two. And it's nuts. It, It could be any of those. We don't know. We know what it says. The sons of God saw the daughters of men. And those are the giants of old. What are later the Anakim. That's why it's weird that they survived the flood. Uh, because the flood killed everybody. They're not of the line of Seth. But then we have sons of Anak after the flood. I don't know. Either somebody got saved and spared the flood through shady nefarious means. Um, or one of uh, one of the wives of Noah. You know, Noah's children's wives or something had the recessive genes of whatever went on. I don't pretend to understand it. Uh, I know it says it. Um, my personal savior came back from the dead and raised other people from the dead and cast out demons and stuff. So angels are real. So the idea that angels could have a child with a human and that would do something horrible to the human gene pool, that's not outside of my immediate ability to accept. Jesus rose from the dead. He's my savior and Lord. All right. Angel kids, cool. They're all dead. If you read through Deuteronomy, every city that they they pillage and burn, uh, coming up to, they they level the whole city, God tells them to. And then later in the book of Joshua, every city that they level is a city where there were giants, the sons of Anak. That's interesting. God tried to, right after that happened, God kills everybody with a flood except Noah, who's perfect in his generations. Perfect in... In his lineage. Because you're righteous in faith before the Lord. We know because like. Three chapters later. Uh, two chapters later ish. Abraham you know. Is, was believed and is counted as righteous. The, the phrasing is different. He's perfect in his genealogies. Perfect in his generations. Or. Or. His line was unpolluted. By the sons of God. Whatever philandering they got up to. That's clearly the understanding because we have a book of Enoch. Whether you think the book of Enoch is inspired or not, people wrote it either because they believe the events happened or those events were believable for other people to read. That means everybody understood back in the before times, the before four times, or angels doing stuff that was, you know, untoward and bad bad things resulted from it. So, the one issue that I do have, there was something I said I would get back to, and I, I don't remember what it is anymore, and I apologize for that. I'm doing these in one take, though, otherwise I would just never stop fussing over all the nuance, and I'd never have enough time to edit everything together. So, the last thing that does bother me, and I, I think I've found a way to be okay with it, is the fact that God changes his mind. But God does not change. But he repents. But he's not a man that he should repent. But he changes his mind. Read at face value in historical context, that is the only legitimate contradiction in Scripture. 
that I can find. Perceived contradiction, I will say. Uh, because I believe God's word is true. Jesus Christ came back from the dead. And he quotes from like 80% of the Old Testament. 70%. I forget the exact numbers. Um, so it's, it's divinely inspired. It's the word of God. How do we, how do those things fit? We don't make them fit. We have to change our perspective till we see them line up right. And we go, oh, I get it. That makes sense. And, uh, you know, it may never happen, but the goal is just be moving there as you go through life. Uh, Genesis chapter six, right? Right back to the, uh, sons of God, the daughters of men. They... God repents that he made man and it grieved him to his spirit. So, boom, we see God has emotions, uh, side note. And he repents. It, it, he, he decides to unmake a lot of people real fast with some heavy downfall. Alright, uh, Malachi 3.6. God says, I do not change. Just straight up says it. Uh, what was it? Exodus something something. Um, I forget who it was posted that on a on a video this morning, but yeah, it's uh, God. God repents, straight up repents. Well, we're kind of stuck, aren't we? Uh, Numbers twenty three nineteen is the one I quoted earlier. The uh, God is not a man that he should uh, change his mind. Uh, is, is God a man that he should change his mind, or is he uh, like one of the sons of man that he should repent? Implication being no, obviously. Uh, it's a rhetorical question. So what do you do with that? God doesn't change. Okay, fine. God doesn't change his mind. Jeremiah 26, 13. Uh, if you will change, then I will repent. Oh, what? Uh, Jonah 3, 9. Maybe God will repent. That uh, contextualizes it, I think. No, Exodus was the one where, yeah, God repents, and then Numbers is where he does not repent. I have right, Malachi 3, 6. I wrote it in the wrong section when I'm... I got a little 3x5 card with notes here so I don't ramble as badly. It's still pretty bad, though. It's, it's pretty bad, you guys. <clears throat> so, God changes, but he doesn't change. The, the best way I've been able to wrap my brain around this is God keeps his word. And there are several times he has made his word conditional. Jonah was one of the passages. Do you know what message Jonah is given to the city of Nineveh? Forty days and Nineveh will yet be destroyed. That's it. Not a word of repentance. Not a blessed word. Just your city is going to be destroyed. That was what they said. The eternal God who does not change destroyed Nineveh. No, he didn't. There appears to be, if, if unspoken at times, a condition of obedience. God's word can be conditional on your behavior and your actions because you have free will. So the people of Nineveh heard, we're all going to be destroyed. And what did they do? Live it up, man! No, they, as a, as a country, as a city, got together and said, let's repent. They stopped all the bad they were doing. They uh, stopped slapping people with fish. 
and sackcloth and ashes, repented, begged for God's forgiveness. And the king says, maybe he will see our change of heart and not destroy us. Maybe he will repent and not destroy us. So God spares Nineveh. Did he break? He didn't keep his word. He chose to spare them because they repented. Had they not repented, they would have been obliterated. God keeps his word. And when he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. There is a condition of whether or not you obey. Jeremiah 26, 13. If you change your ways, then I will repent. Uh, Robert's paraphrase. There is a condition. God gives all of the... uh, When the Israelites are entering the promised land, right? They have to go across Mount Gerizim, uh, Ebal and Gerizim, and shout blessings and curses back and forth at each other. These are the curses we will receive if we disobey the laws God gave us. Here are the blessings we will receive if we keep the law God gave us. So it it becomes, yes, God keeps his word. He makes part of it conditional at times based on you. Man was allowed to continue living in the earth. And then they were so sinful and so horribly indulgent that God chose to repent of allowing man to live. You may live. And there's a certain point, death, death is what you get for sin, guys. All of us right now are on a stay of execution. That's where you're at. You currently have a stay of execution. And you don't know how long it's going to last. Every breath you take is a piece of mercy. Every second you live beyond your first sin, that's a piece of mercy. Because you deserve to die the moment you transgress the nature and being of God. And you don't. Because he is merciful and patient. And so, when an entire civilization to a man indulges in just the worst abominations and atrocities possible, God sets the hammer down. Because none are innocent, no, not one. Now, that's that's the way I come to it, is it's conditional. Um, and then Abraham talks God into some conditions on destroying uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, you know, if you've got ten righteous people. He talks him down from fifty. At first, God was just going to destroy it no matter what. And uh, Abraham, how does that work? Abraham changes his mind somehow. He he talks him uh, down to uh, a very minimal threshold. Only ten righteous people. And uh, he wouldn't destroy Gomorrah. Or Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't know, right? That's, uh, it's a big I don't know. But that's the best I've been able to wrap my brain around it. Is it's, he repents, all of the ones I've seen fit for conditional moments, where it's the conditional word of God. 
I will destroy you unless you repent. But he doesn't have to spare you because you repented. You're still worthy of death. You transgress the law. So, I don't know. It's a big it's a big stuff, but what I have found is those are smaller problems to deal with because Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I know that because I read the New Testament historically, grammatically, at face value. The only reason that you have a problem with a passage is because you think science is better or Jesus isn't as good or something. The historicity of the resurrection is the way I logically structure all of this because I'm, I'm a very precise, logical person. Other people have a lot of like experiences or emotions or they, they heard things as they got saved. Uh, God hardwires everybody a little differently, I think. Uh, we're allowed to upload whatever software we see fit as we live, but the hardwiring is still there. And he responds to us and interacts to us individually as, as we have been crafted by his hand. So, that's this is, my for my mileage, the way I've done it. I've grown up in the church my whole life. I've uh, gone to Bible college. This is the worldview that I've found to be the most logically consistent with the fewest problems and the most meaning and purpose in it. And you can't just look at Christianity and say, oh, it's so good because it's, you know, it's just, it's so useful. That's all. It builds useful civilizations. It's, it's helpful and it's, it's just the best, um, you know, one. That's, that's all. And I, I, I haven't read the great good thing, but I believe that's why Andrew Clavin is a Christian. And that's the thought track that brought him there was seeing how Christianity is the only moral framework that gets you out of the hole, that puts a society together, that helps you find meaning in your life, that, that helps everything work better and helps society build. And so it's useful. Then the question becomes, at some point, you have to look down and go, why? Why is it useful? Why is it the only useful religion for building a functional, technologically advanced, prosperous society full of good, honest, meaningful people. It's because it's true. That's why. That's the answer to why. I've heard him come just short of asking the question on his show before. And I think that's that's the thought process that got him there. Was the He, he realized it was the only good and useful one. Now why is the next question. Because it's true is the answer. So, I, I went on for a little long. Uh, that's all I've got for that. Man, I wish I could remember what the other thing was. Um, it was Kane's wife. Oh, canopy theory. I'm going to go real quick on it. Canopy theory is the theory that there was a either a thick, thick barrier of water vapor around the earth. Uh, it assumes around earth. Uh the atmosphere had a massively thick barrier of water vapor around it, or ice, or liquid water as a giant sphere around the Earth several thousand feet in the air. Uh, That would create the Earth as a giant greenhouse. You know, a space, everything's still normal. If God created the world, because it says he separated the waters from the waters, 
And that's where he put the firmament, the sky, right? How do you separate waters from waters with sky in the middle? What are clouds? Canopy theory is the one that makes the most sense because the logical byproduct of a giant thick canopy of vapor or water of some kind over the sky would turn Earth into this wonderful tropical greenhouse of a planet. Uh, and then that's also where a lot of the extra, why it rains for 40 days on the planet and you have a flood. And then the, uh, the continental shift happens and you know some of it, it drains off. That's why two-thirds of the planet is covered in water right now. Why would God build a planet designed to be inhabited by humans and we can only use 40% of it? That's less than half of the planet we can live on as usable landmass. The rest is gigantic salty oceans. So that's the one that makes the most sense to me. Once again, God doesn't need a naturalist explanation, but as we learn more about science and uh, develop our civilization, certain lines in the Bible suddenly make sense. God stretched out the heavens. That phrase repeats a lot in Psalms. And there's there's a book written by an astrophysicist who talks about if God created the stars close to earth and then stretched out the heavens at the speed of light or you know as fast as he wanted to or whatever the you don't have to worry about the the light traveling all the way to earth taking thousands and millions of years to get here uh you know he either created the light in transit all the way or it said he stretched out the heavens it's possible the light would stay here and then he just stretched the stars out uh, also, the speed of light isn't fixed. Look it up. It changes. It changes slightly. And they just, they don't acknowledge it or talk about it, but it, it does. Uh, they just kind of pick one and, and stuck with it. So, um, God could change it. Whatever. He's God. He's God, guys. He's God. Uh, but anyway, that, the canopy theory, that was the, the sideline. I, I only mentioned it the other evening because people were having trouble conceptually with the uh, separating the waters from the waters. Uh, with a sky in the middle, what do you do? Well, it's, it's where clouds are, or put a water canopy above the planet. Like it's this water vapor one makes the most sense to me because that's how clouds work. But he's God, as uh, as cool man Devin points out. All right, that's all I got. I'm starting to ramble. It's it's been a day, you guys. It's Friday for me right now. I record these beforehand and, and upload them later because it works better for me because I have terrible data. I can't stream in my vehicle at all like some cool peeps can. I got the Walmart phone, guys. I'm sorry. All right, that's all I got. Never take my word for it. Do your own reading and research. And uh, I will see you next time. Godspeed.